sometimes I wonder who am I to have this podcast? Who am I to have follows online? And more importantly, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> and I'm in denial of things that happened to me. And I think that like somebody has taken over. I realized that it's called imposter syndrome. And in today's episode, I have Deborah Newt on the show. Deborah speaks about imposter syndrome on a generalized level and about her personal experiences. I am Michael Hageman, and this is Allocated. Hello and welcome to Allocated. Today we have Deb Newt on the show. Deb is speaking about how we can feel worthy when we think we're a fraud. Deb, how are you? I'm pretty great. How are you? Oh, not too bad. You picked a nice and early time slot, so I'm still waking up, but um, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Okay, I'll be gentle, but you have to be gentle with me too. <laughs> I'll I'll do the best I can. How okay. about that? And uh, you are in. You're across the seas, so you're uh, my second guest across the seas. Where exactly are you at? I'm in Greece. I live here. I'm Canadian. I'm from Ottawa, mm. but I live in Greece. I've lived here. Oh my god. Uh, for like 28 years or something crazy like that. But where was your other guest from? Um, be Dennis and Luis. They were from uh, uh, Sweden and uh, Holland. Oh, the slow life. Is mm-hmm. that? Yes, I have. I saw that you released that episode. I really want to. I just haven't had a chance yet, but I really want to listen to that. Amazing. Yeah, I had I had a lot of fun speaking with them. And it's uh, I could tell just from the difference of being, you know, different countries, it's People do stuff a little a bit differently across seas. Yeah. You know. Especially the way that it's people, so you know, true. kind of put words together when they talk. And also I didn't know there was also a ridiculous knitting community. Dennis was telling <laughs> me about how he had a, a podcast before and uh he's from the from Holland and he uh, there's a knitting community and my guy they get they get pretty serious. I mean and then it's like a global thing, but is it like competitive knitting? I I, I, would, I don't quite I don't quite know. I really don't. <laughs> right? <laughs> we shouldn't make fun, but I think it sounds amazing. Oh, no, I'm not no making, I know you're not. <laughs> no, not at all. Dennis, if you're listening to this, I'm not making fun about the knitting community. No. I don't want they are very they're a very close knit community. <laughs> and I I don't I don't want anybody after me, especially not internationally. Especially not but, with those knitting needles, Jesus. Right? Right. right. Don't even but get me no, started on crocheting. God. Oh, boy. But um, <laughs> it's crazy about how the the internet can allow people to connect, especially overseas, and speak about, know. you know, any topic you want to. And that's um, I know one thing today I'm very, I've, I'm a little familiar with the topic we're speaking about, about imposter syndrome. Um, not entirely, mm. but mm. a little bit. And uh, we could start off by, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, wow. Where to start? <laughs> it's like such a, a hard question. Okay. So the synopsis is, um, you know, you read the back of the book before you buy the book. So I'll give you a little synopsis mm-hmm. and then we can get into it. But I think that I'm a person who about five years ago had like this epiphany. Just I realized that my life was nowhere near what it could be. And I I just kind of feel like I woke up from a dream. So I've just been trying for the last five years, but it's been a really exciting journey, but terrifying to 
implement my dreams to actually to figure out what I want in the first place and try to implement those dreams. So I was somebody who was very, uh, well, I'll, I'll get into this, but like, I didn't ask for much. I didn't want to like get my voice out there. And now I've, I've got a podcast. Now I've got a, a coaching business going. I work in the corporate world. I haven't managed to leave my, my job behind yet, but hopefully that'll happen one day. Um, and I just really feel like I'm, I'm taking those terrifying steps to try to drive my life instead of life driving me, which is something we've talked about, you know, before. So, um, so how did this all come to be? It, going back, it um, it all started when I was really young. That sounds like the beginning of like all <laughs> books, you know. Um, I didn't realize it, but growing up, I had depression, anxiety, and OCD. I didn't know it. I mean, I grew up, I was born in 1970. So I was like sort of my key formative years were the 80s. So in the 80s, um, I'm a bit older than you. Um, you know, nobody really talked about mental health. Nobody, it was all very... Um, like what's it called? Sparkly and 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 surface level, and everybody was just sort of like nouveau riche and and, and um, I don't know. Everything was just super superficial, and uh, so I had all these horrible thoughts. I constantly felt like happiness wasn't for me. I just I you know anytime I would have what I call the audacity to have a positive thought, to have a good time, some sort of negative thought would come and mm. cancel that out. And and as I said, this happened, I mean, I was a really young child. Like I, I always felt guilty about something. If you talk to anybody with depression and anxiety, guilt is a very, uh, even though you haven't done anything, it's a very overwhelming and overriding feeling. Um, so I always felt like I had to feel bad about something. And um, I, I, I like sometimes I've explained it by saying I had like a, an angel on one shoulder who wanted me to be happy and, and just a normal kid. And, and I was, I mean, by all accounts, nobody knew what was going on with me. But then there was like this devil on the other shoulder who was like, no, 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 that's not for you. And it's actually, I mean, I know I, I'm a smiling, you know, happy person. Uh, a lot of depressed people are, um, but it was actually pretty brutal, even though I, I'm sort of smiling and laughing about it now. So, mm. um, I didn't reach out for help until about high school, but even then I didn't really get any help. And it's not like my parents are to blame or anything like that. I just, I just think that they were like, you know, this is teenager stuff. It's the eighties. People didn't really talk about stuff like that. So what happened is I just, I let it fester. I just accepted that, okay, happiness isn't for me. I will always have this negative thought to come in and quash whatever positive thought I have the audacity to to have. So this was a, a pattern. And this is what I call like the double whammy of depression, because it's not bad enough that you have depression, but you end up like, this is just the way you get trained to think. Like, this is all mm. I knew how to think. So even though I eventually got diagnosed with depression, OCD, and uh, anxiety when I was 30, which is a long time to leave something untreated, um, even though I, I I made I personally made the choice to go on medication, but of course everybody can you know make their own decision about that. It took me two years to make the decision to go on medication. Um, my, my point is that I didn't take it lightly. I don't take going on medication lightly. I, I really you know sort of researched it, and for, and for me personally, it was the right decision. But um, I still like even though the medication absolutely helped with the depression and the anxiety and the OCD, this is still the only way I had learned how to think, mm. like like that I'm always going to suffer, that I'm never going to be worthy of a happy 
life like everybody else seemed to have. So so we can get into that in a second, but let me just sort of finish my, let's say, life story. Um, so despite sort of all of this going on, I was, you know, a really good student. Um, yeah, went to university. I ended up studying commerce um, at the at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. So there's a, a Bachelor of Commerce, which is a business degree. And um, I was really interested in international business. So for my third year, I was accepted to go on a student exchange to England. And for my fourth mm. year, I went to France. So yeah, it was really, I always felt like I was meant to leave Canada. I'm not sure why, but I just had a very adventurous spirit, always fascinated by other countries and whatnot. And, you know, undiscovered knitting communities, of course. And uh, <laughs> and so I went to university in England my third year and I ended up meeting who the man who would become my husband. He was Greek. And um, we ended up, we'd never planned on living in Greece. We planned on living in Canada or, or the UK or something. But we came here to for him to do his military service. And I just ended up finding a job here. And we ended up staying. So you know, 28 years later, uh, we're still here. Um, so that's sort of how I, I got out of Canada, but, you know, again, of a, a difficult path, like it was as though I had programmed myself to always choose the more difficult route, which, you know, now I'm seeing sort of how much that has benefited me and how it was sort of meant to be for me. But, um, I just think it was all part of this thought process that I had, about how, you know, I just had it like ingrained in my brain that life was never going to be easy for me. And um, something else I should mention, I'm not sure if you know very much about OCD, you know, people throw the term, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. Um, it's funny because we throw it around and it actually has taken on like a really kind of cute, quirky um, mm. connotation. You know, people will say like, I don't know, uh, if you, let's say you're out for dinner with a friend and you organize your knife and fork, you know, your friend might make a joke about, oh, you know, OCD much. Um, and I get that. And I think that, you know, also there was the movie um, As Good As It Gets, I think, with Jack Nicholson, where, again, he's portrayed mm. as this OCD, yep. right, guy who, you know, won't step on cracks. And, you know, that's hilarious. But <laughs> mm. I get that. I mean, I have a great sense of humor. But OCD is brutal. It's brutal. Because what people don't understand is that it's not just this, like, I have to turn the light switch on. Actually, what is it? So it's obsessive compulsive. So you have these obsessive ideas that something bad's going to happen or something that I didn't realize that you're afraid that you might do something bad to somebody. And that's what I had. Like I oh. wasn't, yeah, my fear wasn't like, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, my fear, let's say a lot of people have uh, an obsession with uh, germs. Um, but it's very real to them. It seems ridiculous to anybody outside of it, but they are they are genuinely terrified of germs and becoming infected um, because this is a mental illness. That's what their brain is telling them. But I didn't have that. What I had, and I don't want to compare what's worse, was I was always afraid that I was going to lose control and do something bad to someone else, to hurt someone else, never myself. And um, so I just thought I was this horrible person. Like, what kind of normal person would have? I didn't think, I don't think I had thoughts of like actually acting stuff out, but just these images, these horrible images would come into my brain, like of losing control and like hurting somebody. Um, and so you do the compulsion. So that's the obsession part. The compulsion is the thing you do to relieve the stress, which also doesn't make a lot of sense. Like for me, I would like knock on my head for some reason. And that 
relaxed me. Uh, or I would say a little prayer, but I might do it like a hundred times a day, you know, so it can be, you can get into this loop of the negative thought comes, you do your soothing um, ritual, uh, but then, the, you know, and that makes you feel better for like about five seconds. And then it, it's just this horrible, horrible cycle. So anybody who knows anybody with OCD, you know, really try to understand that it's, it's, it's brutal. So um, I remember when I was 30 and I just had this horrible mental breakdown. It was probably, I was, had been in Greece for maybe five years. I think it was probably a whole bunch of things like just the stress of this huge move and learning the language and, 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 and all that stuff and, and newly married and, and everything. And I finally had a, a breakdown, um, absolutely suicidal. And um, I went to a psychiatrist and I was telling him, I was so ashamed to say to him, like, I have thoughts of harming people. I just thought that's like the worst thing anybody can do. And he said, you have OCD, that's perfectly normal. Mm. And it was like he had taken this, I don't know, this cement structure off my shoulders and like put it aside. And I was like, okay, so there's a name for this. I'm not a bad person because that was it for me. So I was just like, of course, I'm not happy. Of course, I'm not thriving because I'm a bad person. Why would a bad person be deserving of any sort of joy in this life? Does, am I explaining this well? So all of this was the cycle of, you know, yes, you deserve to be miserable because you're a horrible person because only a horrible person would think of harming other people, which of course it was the illness, it wasn't me. Um, so as I said, when I, when I was around 30, I ended up going on medication and that helped a lot. But this is the, the programming that I was talking about. I still, the only way I had, I had ever learned how to think was that I'm not worthy. I don't deserve happiness. I'm a bad person. And you know, when this stuff gets imprinted on your subconscious, subconscious, uh, subconscious, sorry, it's really hard to change that blueprint. Mm. It takes a lot of work. Um, I can't think of an example, but it's like, you know, you have a blueprint for a, an apartment building. You, right. you know, that's your Bible right? Or whatever you want to call it. That's your Bible. You build, you employ people. They, you know, they, they hammer, they lay cement, they do the, what, the, the structural. And then you're like, oops, <laughs> shit. I didn't want to build it that way. Does that make sense? Like, but I've just, you know, I'm just, I built my whole personality, my whole character, my whole thought process on a very wrongly laid uh, blueprint. Not, but, you know, not to despair. We can, it's, you know, I guess the building, you can't really like, like, whatever, knock it down. But fortunately, right. we can reprogram. So you have a story about the IRS and the FBI equivalent in Greece uh, going after you and... um <laughs> That really kind of, I wouldn't say jump-started the imposter syndrome, but it's kind of, um, it helped me understand why you know imposter syndrome so well. Uh, do you care to explain that? So I worked for a software company for many years, like 13 years or something like that. And um, we, I went into work one morning and the, I guess it would be the, the equivalent in the States, uh, it was like, the IRS and and the police uh, raided the office. Okay, on on a morning in 2010, they came in and were like, just everybody, you know, 
pens down, step away from your computers. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? Well, we were all like that. And, um, and they, sorry, that's one part. And then my husband at the time was calling me saying, what the hell's going on? The police just came to our house. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Like this is, it's terrifying. Like even just describing it to you, even though it was like, you know, it ended, it was like 13 years ago, my legs are like numb. So, and then, and then his mother calls me and they live in another town and she's like, what's going on? The police just showed up at this house too. And I was like, okay, wait a second. So this is not only is this like my office, the, the, the company that I'm working for being investigated, but they've gone to my house in Athens and they've also gone to my in-laws house in another city. It, I don't know, Michael, if I can explain to you how terrifying that is. <laughs> um, so terrifying. Like I, oh, I'll explain a bit more. So they ended up zeroing in on me. And I guess the interest with me was that I was the, like, sort of like a personal assistant to the boss, to the CEO. Mm. Um, gotcha. So they felt that I had all this information. So the investigation was 100% about him and some dealings or whatever, you know, he had, of course. I didn't know anything about them, but um, they really zeroed in on me because I was privy to so many emails and whatnot that he had sent. And of course, well, I'll tell you the end. It ends well, so <laughs> I'll tell you. So, um, so this was in 2010, and for a, like a year, I don't know if I can explain how scary it was. Like every time the phone rang, I was like, "That's it, um, I'm being summoned," or you know, every time that Michael. Oh, I lost your video. Oh, Bill, 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 it might go in and out a little bit, but I'm still. Oh, here. okay. So, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, it was absolutely terrifying. Like the doorbell would ring, and I'd be like, "The police are here. They're they're coming to get me. I'm going away." And I, this, let's not forget that I'm also a person who already has depression and anxiety. And we have a ten. Although I'm, you know, I was regulated on my medicine, I um, we have a tendency to be very paranoid. Um, so this was just the situation just absolutely exacerbated all the paranoia I already had. Um, so for a couple of years, people would like colleagues and whatnot would call me and say, oh, you know, I was interviewed by the police and I was interviewed and they were asking about you. And, and after like a year or two, I actually had the positive thought like, okay, they didn't call me in for questioning. So maybe that's a good thing. Maybe this whole thing is over. Maybe, you know, no charges have been laid or, or whatever. And then I thought, this is a bad thing. Mm. They're, they're they're not calling me because they're putting a case together against me. And um sure enough, I came I went home to Canada um in 2014. So four this is four years of terror. Um I'm trying to raise my daughter and thank God I I have to say that I just thank God I was able to really focus on her and not um like let any of this affect my relationship with her and and raising her and whatnot. So in 2014, um, I ended up getting served the papers. It's, I guess, instead of like being arrested, like coming to my house and putting me in handcuffs, I got served the papers saying that I was being charged with this, that, and the other thing. I was being charged with fraud, money laundering, and forgery. Myself and 15 other people, including my boss, of course. So it just is just this case, just, you know, it started with him and it just ended up dragging in all these, you know, poor people who had nothing to do with it. Terrifying. 
And I, you know, I was in Canada on vacation. I was like pretty happy. And then these papers arrived in Greece and I got the phone call that they had arrived. And I was like, I felt like, what am I going to tell my parents? How am I ever going to explain this to my parents? Like, I didn't. This was 2014. And I didn't end up telling them or anybody in my Canadian family about it until like 2018, 2019, because I was like, you see, right. I am the fraud. I am a bad person. So let me just finish the story and then I'll sort of tell you the more psychological part of it. So, oh, and by the way, parenthesis, in 2012, August, my daughter was diagnosed with epilepsy and my husband was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, so, wow. Yes. <laughs> so just one huge slap after the other. Thankfully, my daughter, I don't know if anybody has heard of it, had child absence syndrome. So it's not epilepsy where they have, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, it's not epilepsy where they have seizures. What their seizures are, are they just get, they just get lost in space. Um, like, really? Yes. It's like they just zone out like this and then come back and they zone out and they come back. Yeah, it's really interesting. Child absence syndrome, if anybody wants to look it up. So it's, um, I, I was like, why is she just ignoring me? So she was like five. Um, is she like hearing voices? I mean, her mom's crazy. So she's probably crazy too. Mm. You know? <laughs> so, um, anyway, we eventually got it diagnosed. And the thing is that it's like if you pulled your computer like abruptly just out of the wall, like out of the socket, and it like shut down. That's what th that's what happens to them. They they completely shut down. But they can do it. They can they can have like a hundred or hundred and fifty episodes daily. So right. right. So they can they're missing school. They're totally out of it. Anyway, that's a whole other um, episode. Really, like there's just mm. so much. But the good thing is that it normally is a, a form of epilepsy that they grow out of in adolescence. And thankfully. When she was about 12 or something, we had her last um, ECG. Is that what it's called? No, EEG. EKG. EKG. Yeah, sorry. Somebody can correct us. Maybe. Um, head scan, right? <laughs> um, and she was clear. So thank God she was one of those cases that ended up um, growing out of it because the brain hasn't fully developed, you know, until mm. about that age. And then my, my husband also had a very, um, he had cancer in this renopharyngeal area, which is behind the nose kind of thing. He couldn't have surgery because it was too close to the brain. So our only options, which we did both of them, were radiation and uh, chemotherapy. So very, 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 very difficult six months, but thank God he, he got over it. So we've got all that going on. Then in 2014, I get charged. Then in 2016, um, am I right about this? No. Yes. I get called in for questioning. Finally, I finally get to tell my side of the story um, to, I guess it would be like the equivalent of the uh, FBI, DA. maybe the FBI didn't call me um, trying to federal bureau. of. I'm trying to think of what the equivalents are over here. So I guess the FBI would have been at that initial raid. Mm. Um, but then as it started to go through the system, I had to, in 2016, um, be interviewed. We all did by the the district attorney, mm. and she was. I was so nervous. Like I just, and I was. It was all in Greek too. So I was. I mean, my Greek is pretty good. But um, <clears throat> she was like, at the end of it, she was like, Ms. Newt, it is 
100% clear to me that you had nothing to do with this. And I'm like, well, thank you, but what are you going to do about it? She's like, I can't, like, it's it's probably a Greek thing, but she said, I can't, like, I, I can't go to bat for just you. Like, I can't right. take just your name out of the, the dossier and pass everybody. Like, I would have to justify it and, like, go through questioning myself and do you know what i mean like she it would be it was a huge responsibility for her to just like hand pick well let's take ms newt out and everybody else can go so she's like i'm so sorry you're just gonna have to go through the whole process but the good thing is you know you convinced me so when it does ultimately go to court it's it's going to be clear for them too so she she made me feel a little bit <laughs> better but it, terrifying 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 experiences and then in 2018 anyway long story um the court um, case started, and in Greece, things are, you know, they move along very slowly. And then COVID came along, so it started moving, you know, even more slowly. And um, in 21, so it all started in 2010, in 2021, so 11 years, we all got acquitted of everything. There was no case. So I don't know what he did to piss somebody off, but we all ended up paying dearly for it. And it's like, um, I don't know how I got through that, um, you know, because you, you don't just go on medication and everything is hunky-dory. <laughs> you know, you go on medication right. to function at a, a normal or let's, or average level. So I just, I did everything in my power to, to be okay just reading philosophy, reading religion, any religion I could get my hands on, yoga. Um, I just was like, I, I have to be here for my kid. I can't, um, I can't just melt down. And, and, you know, this is something like, think about it. She was three when all this started and she was almost 14 when it ended. If I had checked out mentally for 11 years, that's like our entire formative years, like it just wasn't an option. And um, something else I wanted to say is that um, my worst bout of depression was actually after I gave birth to my daughter in 2007. It was like, I had felt suicidal before, but this was the time that I thought there's like no way I can keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's just there's no point in living like this. Like it, it just, <clears throat> it, it's so hard because I never, like so many people say, you know, people who commit suicide are so, <clears throat> sorry, um, selfish because they leave everybody else behind to pick up the pieces. But I, I really do feel compassion for them because I've been there because they genuinely, there are two things. They genuinely don't see how they can function another day. Like it just doesn't, this just does not make any kind of sense to them, like how they're actually going to make it through an entire day. And also they very often think that everybody else would be better off without them. Like, and mm. I remember you can interrupt me anytime, right? I'm just telling, this is my train of a, a life that I, <laughs> I'm sharing with you. Um, but <clears throat> I guess I want to say that, uh, I, yeah, I remember uh, I was on maternity leave, so I was at home with the baby and my husband was leaving for work and he said, um, are you going to be okay? And I said, I really honestly don't know if I'm going to be here when you get back. 
And I'm not a dramatic person. I am not a, you know, high maintenance woman. I, I hate sort of expressions like that, but I just, I was not exaggerating. I did not know how I was going to survive for another eight hours on this planet feeling the way that I felt. And I remember another time, she was a few months older and we had gone somewhere with our friends. I think it was one of the first times I had gone out maybe since giving birth. And um, sorry, <clears throat> and everybody was talking about her baptism and where you're going to baptize her and when and all this stuff, because in Greece, at least, you know, baptisms, like religious rituals are still very uh, predominant. And uh, I remember listening to the conversation thinking, God, I hope everybody has a nice time at the baptism because I wasn't going to be there. I could not imagine existing three, six, whatever months from now and being there. Like that's how real it was that I wanted to die. But I went on medication and I went back on medication and, um, and I just thought, I don't have the luxury of living like this. Like I brought this child into the world. It was my decision. I'm an adult. She didn't ask to be born. So I better do whatever the fuck I can in life to keep going because I am not going to make her grow up wondering what her mother would have been like, <clears throat> if her mother would have been proud of her, what her mother would have said. No. I was like, I'm not leaving my kid with that question mark. Again, that's not a comment on people who ultimately do take their lives. I, I get it. I totally get it. But for me personally, it was just this huge wake-up call to never let myself get that low again. And I've gotten very low, but I just, <clears throat> I haven't, knock on wood, broken like that again. Mm. So, so this is sort of like the big part of my story. And I think that... Um, when the case ended in 21 successfully, and I also successfully separated from my husband, that's when this epiphany happened where I was like, <clears throat> I was like, I am never letting myself, I'm never letting my life be defined again by external circumstances. I will deal with external circumstances, but my strength and the way that I choose to show up and to deal that's that's me. Like, I'm not going to continue to get the shit kicked out of me by life. And so we've, we've talked about this before. It's like, are you on the life train or are you driving the life train? Like, am I just letting life take me where it seems to want to go? Or am I actually partaking in the thought in, in the decision process? Like, you know what? I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. I can't imagine how difficult it's going to be to separate, but you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to put mm -hmm. one foot in front of the other. I'm going to have those hard conversations. I'm going to envision a positive outcome. It's going to be hell for two, three, four years, whatever it was, and it was hell. Uh, but look at us now. Like, you know, not that we don't have our issues, but we are, I'm separated. I'm free. I don't have to deal with the day-to-day -day negativity that my husband unfortunately brought into my life, but I still get to enjoy him as, you know, the father of my, my daughter um, and a person who wants the best for her. So it worked out. 
So that's it. I don't, I'm sorry. I, hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm chatty. Uh, that leading into um, imposter syndrome, can you define what exactly imposter syndrome? Um, okay, sorry, my audio cut out there. Um, yeah. Uh, that leads directly into imposter syndrome, um, your story. And can you define what imposter syndrome is? Yes. Imposter syndrome is the best way to describe it. I'm sure maybe you've even experienced it. It's that voice in your head that says, who the fuck do you think you are? thinking that you can, I don't know, do this seminar, teach this seminar. Who the fuck do you think you are thinking you can have a podcast? What the hell could you possibly have to say? Why should people listen to you? So what it is, is, I mean, that's how it made sense to me, is even though you or, or anybody, the collective you knows that they are good at something, that they are good at speaking, that they are good at writing, that they are good at acting, that they are good at raising their kids, that they, this, that, the other thing, even though there's like proof, tangible proof that they are good at something, they do not feel worthy. Mm. They don't feel skilled. They don't feel like, I'm not sure if that's ever happened to you, Michael. I mean, it happens to me, oh, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, now you know what it's called. And yeah. I, actually I was listening, you did a great episode was it with Jeremy Littell. Yep. Um, I think you guys, t I love that episode because we actually on my podcast, we actually did an episode on, on humor and uh, depression. So it's a, it's, um, a subject that's really dear to my heart. That was a great episode, but, um, you guys were talking about imposter syndrome because I think that he, he was feeling it too. He's like, who the hell am I to think that I can make a difference in somebody's life? Um, you know, I'm a life coach and then I have my bad days and I'm like, what the, who do you think, you can't even solve your own shit. How are you supposed to help other people solve their shit? Right. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think we can look at it like that. Um, it's, you know, it's, I think it's logical to have self-doubt. And uh, actually, something that I found really interesting about imposter syndrome that I didn't know is that it's a diagnosable mental illness. I thought it was. Really? Yeah. Yes. I, I did look not it know up. that. I had no idea I mean, that's actually something they could they could diagnose right me neither i i looked it up actually because i was coming on here and i was wanted to le read a little bit more about it um i thought it was just one of those catch phrases you know that everybody right. everyone yeah everyone's talking about imposter syndrome it's like the new buzzword uh but no it's diagnosable um so i probably got that too hmm. yay me i got everything <laughs> yeah so it's um it's self-doubt it's low self-worth it's it's these patterns again in our head that tell us that we're not worthy um and again it's like you know how two things vibrate i mean i'm not uh, i don't know a physicist or a biologist or whatever but don't they say that like two things vibrating at the same like frequency or or whatever will ultimately mesh together and vibrate together, something like that. I've heard, I've heard of that before. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm definitely not explaining it very well, but it's like, even like two female friends, they say that ultimately their their menstrual cycles end up synchronizing. Like, there's just this, I don't know, dynamism in the world that ends up syncing together. And I think that that happens with us. Like, whatever we've got ingrained in our blueprint and by blueprint i mean our subconscious uh, subconscious um 
that's ultimately what we will attract into our life. That's ultimately what we will mesh with and, and bring because we don't know anything else. So that's why, like, I think I'm not sure, but I think that our, our thoughts and actions are controlled like 85% by our subconscious and 15% by our conscious. So even though you've, let's say you have done the work and you know that you're good at what you do, you know, like intellectually that you're talented, that you are, I don't know, you, you, you're articulate. Um, if somewhere it's ingrained in you from far back, uh, childhood, whatever, that you're not worthy, that you're not good, um, that voice, that 85% of our subconscious is going to override the 15% of our conscious mind. So that's why we have to work so hard to unpack all this shit that is ingrained in there. And it's, it's hard work. It's hard work. Well, I mean, I know you've done it and it's what I call shadow right. work. I think it's what people call shadow work, not me, but going into that, the nitty gritty, that dark, those horrible, scary places and just looking it straight in the eye and saying, okay, you need to go. Um, what do I do to get rid of you? Right. And with that, <laughs> yeah. with that dark place, I think it's often associated with, uh, you don't, Obviously, you, you don't think you're worthy, so you go into that dark place. And when you yeah. think that happiness is not for you, how do you identify your worth? Oh, God. It's, that's such a good question. And <clears throat> I, I think the most honest answer that I can give is like, I'm pretty, I, I'm always reluctant to talk about spirituality and God and stuff like that because people automatically default to, to religion. And I right. don't, you know, a lot of people, people, a lot of people don't connect with religion and that's absolutely fine. And I, I don't subscribe to a particular religion, to be honest, but I just, because I was so low and so desperate, I had to somehow to connect, like connect to something a little bit bigger than me. And you don't even have to call that God. I just call it like potential. Like mm. this is right. And that takes the spiritual aspect out of it. So I think it's a word like that is easier for people to um, <clears throat> digest than like, you know, God saved me or whatever. So I was just thinking <clears throat> like, I'm pretty sure that there's a version of me out there that's not suffering. I'm, I don't see the point. Like, why would we be here if it was only to suffer? So I think that what started me on my journey to suspecting that maybe happiness could be for me, just this inkling, was this teeny tiny bit of faith and hope that maybe there is another ending to my story. So you, I don't know, call that God, call that believing in my own potential, call that energy, call it whatever you want, whatever helps you, go for it. You know, I have this thing about I don't know if I answered your question, but I have this thing about like, you know, me believing in something a little bit more powerful than myself. Um, or, or even if you talk about religion, people were like, oh, that's just a crutch. I'm like, you know what? If you had a broken leg, wouldn't you use crutches? Like I'm, I'm here, see here, I'm, I'm considering suicide. Um, you're fucking right. I'm going to grab a crutch. If I can grab a crutch to get me through the next day. Yeah. Because you know what? Using that crutch is going to help me walk a little bit and it's going to like strengthen my leg a little bit. And so if I need that crutch 
for six months to get me walking again, you're fucking right. I'm going to use it. And I'm not going to apologize to anybody. Okay. So (laughs) sorry about the language, but I just, you know, yes, it's a crutch. Um, But have you ever made of a person, made fun of a person who uses crutches? Like, I I guess, I, I think the point for me is like, do whatever it takes to take care of your mental health. If believing in something bigger than you works for you, do it. If going to the gym works for you, do it. If journaling works for you, do it. If going on medication works for you, do it. Fight tooth and nail for your mental health. Because it's, for me at least, it's, it's the be all and the end all. No matter how much money I have, no matter whatever, if I don't have my mental health, none of that means anything to me. So your, I think your question was, how can you, if you don't feel worthy, how can you sort of start on a, a journey toward happiness, something like that? So yeah, for me, it was just this little spark, this little inkling that, okay, why, why don't I look into the possibility that maybe happiness is for me? So I started mm. giving a little bit more space to that possibility. And uh, don't get me wrong, I don't, all my problems aren't solved, but I am way happier because I let that possibility come into my heart and like sink into me as a possibility. Um, but so I'm way happier than I used to be because, you know, my blueprint might still be a little bit icky, but there are, there's some brightness there that now meshes with and finds brightness outside of me and lets me mesh with that. So yeah, I hope that makes sense. Some things I'm that fo- make sense in my brain don't yeah, make sense in people's brains. I'm following you there. Uh, I okay, gotcha. And okay. uh, I know before, like during one of our preps, we you spoke about you, their model that you call survive versus thrive. Um, can you explain right. that further? Sure. Yes. Um, that is <clears throat> something that to me is just so interesting. Like, I, I, okay. So there's something again that I didn't know. I only found this out a few months ago. Was there's a difference between psychology and positive psychology. So mm. for many, many years, like up until like the 70s or something, again, you can research this or whoever can research it, there was no positive psychology. And I always wondered what positive psychology meant. So psychology was just pretty cut and dried. Either you're crazy or you're not. Either you, you know, you have a mental illness and you need to get treatment, whether that means, you know, medication, um, <clears throat> what's it called, you know, therapy, like Either you were okay psychologically or you weren't. Um, so, you know, people who had psychological issues were treated so that, like, let's say the average person is here. Anybody who wasn't super well psychologically was treated and, and you know, the aim was always to get them here. Okay. Mm. But this is like, this is just people being okay psychologically, like functioning psychologically. Like. I, I'm, I was trying to think of another organ that we could compare it to, but this is just getting your brain to function properly. But then positive psychology comes along and says, I don't want to just function. I want to experience actual like joy because being okay psychologically doesn't necessarily mean being joyous all the time, being optimistic all the time. It just means that your, your brain is functioning and not necessarily betraying you. Um, so positive psychology comes along and says, I want more. I want to get rid of um, negative ideas. I want to fix the way I show up in relationships. I want to be 
knowledgeable about, you know, what I bring to the table. So it was like, how would I describe it? It's like, if you, I'm trying to think, like you can't practice positive psychology until your psychological condition is okay. It would be like decorating a house that is still just cement and brick, right? Like if your house, like what's the point? If your house isn't in order, isn't solid, isn't like functioning for you in the way it should, like providing you shelter, providing you warmth, providing you whatever, there's no point in going and decorating it. So we all have to be okay psychologically before we can even think about the extra bonus of experiencing actual joy and genuine relationships and and this, that, and the other things. So this is where, this is what I call thrive or, sorry, strive, thrive, survive or, or thrive. So for me, just being okay psychologically is surviving. And that's fantastic. Like so many of us don't even get that. So that's fantastic. But then there's a point where you feel okay enough to think, you know what? That's not enough though for me. I want to thrive. Like you, Michael, could, you know, you have various gifts and talents. You could easily be you, work your nine to five, pay your bills. I don't know if you have, you know, plans to have a family or whatever. And that's fine. But you've clearly chosen, like, you've chosen to thrive based on what your heart is telling you that there's more for you. There's not, and I'm not criticizing anybody who, like, this is again what I call the life train. It's like you go to school, you get some sort of a degree, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, you retire and you die. That's kind of the pattern. That's that's the train I was on. And, and for a lot of people, that's fine. And I'm absolutely not judging that. For me personally, and clearly for you, that's not enough. You want to leave more of a footprint right. on this world. I'm not saying everybody has to. Um, so that's where my coaching comes along. What I try to do is make people, my, my clients understand like, you know, are you thriving? Are you like, what does thriving mean to you? How do you want to feel when you go to bed at night? How do you, what legacy do you want to leave? And, and are you doing that? And, you know, let's define what you want, what, what you want, what do you want written? Like in coaching, there's a an exercise which sounds a bit morbid, but you write your epitaph, and you write mm. the um, I'm not sure what you would call it now, like this the speech or or whatever the talk somebody might stand up at your funeral and say about you. Oh, eulogy, you eulogy, like thank a you. eulogy. Okay, right. You actually write your eulogy. Can you imagine? I don't know if you've ever done anything like that. I don't know. Nope. If I've done it, <laughs> but we learned it. But yeah, <laughs> but you know, it sounds morbid, but. Isn't that a fantastic way to think about how you want to be remembered, what mark you want to leave on the world? Um, so I hope I explained that okay. I just think there's a difference between surviving, which is fine. Sometimes, some days I just survive. There are days when I'm like, Deb, just hmm. one foot in front of the other. I had a day like that a week ago. Like I'm not saying that I've got it all figured out. Thank God I have a wonderful friend who, you know, sort of talked me through it. Another podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great community. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's got a, yeah, yeah. He's uh, the irresponsible podcast, Zach Otero. He's a great friend. And um, he just gave me the space to cry and, and, and get through it. Um, so that's another thing I want people to know that, like, oh God, Michael, I'm sorry. I'm so chatty. I hope it's okay. Uh, you're, you're fine. 
if, if there's any, <laughs> if there's anything, I, I mean, I, I, there's some stuff I could cut out, but I mean, it, it's it's okay. But um, okay. I do, I do know um, imposter syndrome that's uh, largely related to or comes up in conversations being um, like a negative thing to talk about. And on the mm. flip side, is there mm. a way that imposter syndrome can serve as a motivator to drive success? Such a good question. God. I would say absolutely. Um, I just think that you have to be in the mind space to learn. Like, I even felt like an imposter coming on this episode. Like, I'm, <laughs> who, who am I? You know, who, right? There's so many other people who could say the same stuff. Like, but but then I thought, you know what? For whatever reason, Deb, you're going on this episode. So, you know, just this is your time. You know, make it work. Um, so how? So I absolutely had all these thoughts of being an imposter. But as you're saying, like I. I it motivated me to sort of get past all that and, and think like, there's a reason why Michael and I connected. There's a reason why I'm going on his show. I, I'm sure I have at least one thing to say that will resonate with somebody. I mean, right. if I don't, my God, right? So <laughs> it was like, I, I, I think that it can be motivating in, um, in the sense that you, you go out there and try to prove yourself wrong. You chip away at it. You, and then that slowly changes your blueprint. You slowly start seeing more mm. and more wins. <clears throat> and you're like, okay, maybe I'm not so bad. But you know what? I don't think like, I don't think I would ever want to be whatever this is, but like the perfect person or the perfect coach. Like who was it? It was Socrates, I think, who said, um, all I know is that I know nothing. Mm. And that's so liberating because, you know, people who think they know it all and that they've learned it all are for me, at least the least interesting people on the planet. Right. Like thinking that we're lush grounds to, to still learn and to still absorb, that's exciting to me. So you just stay in that thing of, okay, yes, I feel like an imposter, but you know, I'll, I'll do this speech or, or whatever it is, and I'll feel like a, a teeny bit less like an imposter. And then I'll learn something else. And you know what I mean? So it's just this, there's no quick fix. It's you just have to go through it every day and chip away at it. I think. Gotcha. Okay, that that makes sense because I always thought that it could serve as a motivator, and there could be a definitely a positive aspect to that. And uh, sure, um, one thing that um, <laughs> imposter syndrome, like some of the the words or verbs I think of when I I think about imposter syndrome, is uh, like self compassion and self acceptance, and mm -hmm. uh, and self worth. So how does self-worth relate to self-compassion and uh, self-acceptance? Yeah, such good questions. I feel like um I feel like self-worth is that really deeply ingrained thing that you either believe or don't. I am mm. worthy or I am not worthy. And again, it's like we were saying before, I feel like if that's not 100%, then you can't find the space to enjoy the other things like self-compassion, right. self-confidence. I feel like those things are a teeny bit more superficial, not in a bad way, but I feel like if you don't have that deep-seated belief that you are worthy, I don't think you can have, genuinely have genuine self-confidence 
self uh, compassion and all those great words that you you said so <laughs> all yeah. the great words oh i like God. it I, I was thinking yeah. really hard about them i i, I was gonna have <laughs> a list of um you know this like feelings list where it has like <laughs> verbs of everything and right i couldn't find it but i'm like i think those were the relatable words so my god those i'm actually kind of proud of myself there in that moment because i actually you thought see? of it so you that, see you're doing right? self-compassion now you are a living breathing example of self-compassion <laughs> i try i try yeah it shows <laughs> do you have any questions or topics you'd like to speak about further god so many <laughs> oh, no i think that this was a good like uh, set of topics that we covered I I guess I just want people to understand that they absolutely have to prioritize their mental health. Absolutely. And there is so much help out there. And I'm here. Michael's here. You know, we're all in it together. We don't, we're not, you know, better than anybody. We just um, are here to, to commiserate and to support and to listen. So I just, yeah, I really want to encourage people to talk about their mental health because I know that everybody says that, oh, you know, we're so great. Everybody talks about mental health so much more openly now. I'm not 100% convinced of that. I don't think yeah. so. I don't, I don't think, think people so. do. That's right. And I think that that's even more dangerous. I think that, you know, in the 80s when people were like, what? Mental health? What the hell is that? Right. It's even more real than what's going on now where people are like, oh, everybody's so open. No. It's still very... I don't know. It's very fake. I can't think of a more intelligent word, but I think it's all very superficial and very fake. So try to find real people who 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 can understand you. Yeah, I think it. I, I agree with you there. I think it's very fake now. So think the the scope of people that speak about it. It's it's very narrow because you have to find the specific. I guess I wouldn't say specific type of person of a, a person. Mm -hmm. Some specific type of person, right? But. I think that the people that speak about it are still kind of fit a certain mold. And I, I ha absolutely hate grouping people together or doing any generalization, but right. the people that speak out about it, they it's a, it's a very narrow demographic of people that actually talk about it um, just because of the rest still think that, that you shouldn't. And I didn't, I didn't grow up in the eight. Well, I, I was born in the late eighties, but you know, as for, you know, growing up, I, that's, I, that that's before me, but so I don't know exactly <laughs> how, um, how that right. happened, but for like present day, I think it's getting better. And um, yeah, I still, obviously, I, I totally agree. There's still a lot of, definitely a lot of room for improvement. And um, oh, yes. also one thing that um, I know a lot of people deal with their mental health is laughter. And I know you have a podcast and you, um, yeah. what is your podcast called again? Today We Laughed and Learned, right? Did I That's remember right. it Today right? That's right. Today We Laughed and Learned. Yes. I, I do it with a partner. It is so much fun. We, uh, we surprise each other each week with a topic. It can be any topic, but we end up talking about like usually the origins of things. Like for instance, I'm fascinated mm. by prisons because I almost went to prison. So, <laughs> so I, I'm allowed to say stuff like that. <laughs> so we did like, <laughs> I suppose that does bring a little bit of a different layer to your conversation. So, I mean, oh, so technically yeah. <laughs> almost going to prison was good for, was good for the podcast. Right. So but there you see, yeah. I went through 11 years of pure hell so that I could have like 45 minutes of a podcast about it. But yeah, so we talk about all sorts of stuff. Um, 
yeah, it's Today We Laughed and Learned. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast. It's not necessarily about mental health. It's really just two friends having a lot of fun talking about stuff that we probably should have learned at school, but either weren't paying attention or, <laughs> or we were never taught because we think that laughter makes people retain information more easily. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think anytime you learn something or you hear somewhere you can tie an emotion to it, whether it be laughter or, you know, yeah. laughter or like realization of something, it, it it's all the more, right. you know, you think about a, a whole lot more there with laughter. Um, I know I did listen to a part of one of your episodes. I have, I didn't finish it yet, but um, I it's, it's very interesting. And I, I did learn a little bit. I, I definitely, I actually, it was the one about comedy. The one you did about, oh, uh, about comedy. Comedy and depression. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, that was, yeah, that was, yeah, how we people, because I am, you know, I've always, like, one of my friends refers to me as both her most serious and her most, and her funniest friend. Like, Mm. a lot of people who, I just think that we're people of extreme, so just, like, I I feel things very intensely, so just, like, I, I might feel depression very intensely, I also feel humor, and I find funny things very funny. So I, I, I was always a very funny person. And, um, and I think, again, I loved your episode with Jeremy Littell, where you're talking about, um, you know, like sort of the medicinal properties of, of, of humor. Um, but it's, it, that's a whole other topic. Like it's just right. so, like you people like, you know, Jim Carrey and, oh God, I don't mm. know where to start. You know, our, our Robin Williams. I mean, they, they absolutely use comedy as a coping mechanism. Um, it's fascinating. It's a very fascinating topic. Thank you for listening. Right? Yeah, it was. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I, I definitely enjoyed it. So, well, to be honest, that was like episode ten, and now we're at episode like seventy. So, I yeah, really, I would like I, to think that our audio is much better, and <laughs> and our our delivery is much better. I think we found our groove. So, if you have any time, try to listen to something a bit more recent. But I well, that it. you only you only refine with time, right? You know, as you keep going, you, yeah. you definitely refine. And for anybody listening, if you are curious, this is actually our second time that we're recording this because the first time. <laughs> I clicked the wrong button. And I recorded the audio from my camera instead of my microphone. So <laughs> we're fighting with time. And if anybody yes. could take anything away with this, um, imposter syndrome, obviously real. And I have a, a lot better understanding with that. And also, not everything is perfect at all. Never. Oh, my God. Ever. So well, we wouldn't work on ourselves otherwise. Absolutely. Whenever I'm having a bad day, I'm like, okay, this there's some part of me is thinking, make this go away now. I do not like this. But another part mm. is like, but I know that this is, this is causing me to look at something in my life that needs to be addressed so that I can take those two steps forward. So yes, totally agree. Awesome. Well, I do like to uh, thank you, Deb, for being on the oh. show. The thank links you to your... Oh, you're welcome. And uh, <laughs> thank you for re-recording. You know, that... Um, yeah. There's a reason for everything. That's true. That's true. And I will <laughs> link Deb's uh, social media accounts and website in the show notes if you'd like to please check out her stuff. She makes some very good content and provides a lot of value. And uh, oh, like to you. you're welcome. Like to thank everybody for listening or watching this episode. If you like, please subscribe not to miss anything further. Again, I am Michael Hogman and this is Allocated. You have a good day. <laughs>